Hi there, folks. It's time for another Animation One-to-Ones brought to you by Squiggly Online Animation Magazine. This is Ben Mitchell, joined this episode by the wonderful Janet Pellman, who we last featured on the site with her 2014 NFB short, Monsieur Pug. With a solid filmography of funny, quirky animated films under her belt, including My Favorite Things That I Love, Penguins Behind Bars, Invasion of the Space Lobsters, and the Oscar-nominated Tender Tale of Cinderella Penguin, Janet's work over the years has also included contributions to Sesame Street, the NFB's showpiece series, and the collaborative project Pink Com Comma. This week, her latest NFB film, The Girl with the Red Beret, is playing at AnimaFest Zagreb as part of their Time for the Masters program, which showcases recent work by some of the biggest stars of animation. The film is a love letter to Montreal, in which a girl encounters an array of colourful, extravagant characters across the city's metro stations, set to a reorchestrated take on Kate and Anna McGarrigal's Complain pour Saint-Catherine. As a sometimes Montreal like myself, I really got a kick out of this one, and if you're not at AnimaFest this week, I'm sure it'll be playing somewhere close to wherever you are soon, so keep an eye out. In the meantime, let's catch up with Janet Pellman. The Girl with the Red Beret, uh, it's a film made with the NFB, an organization you've had a pretty extensive history with, working with them over the years. Uh, can you tell us a bit about how that all began, how that relationship started? I was in art school. And I was in an animation course and also, and it was in Montreal at the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts School of Art and Design, which doesn't actually exist anymore. But at the time they had some teachers from the National Film Board and I lived in Montreal and I'd heard that they were hiring students for the summer, that they'd take two or three students every summer uh, in a program they had. And so I applied and uh, they actually, uh, I already had made one film at school and it was really crude, very rudimentary, but funny. Um, and uh, the, anyways, I was given, actually they hired me to um, direct some films in a series they were starting called Poets on Film. And they were basically for young filmmakers to, try their hand in the, uh, making films there. And each one would be on a Canadian poem. So uh, I ran to the library and read what I possibly all of Canadian poetry that I could find <laughs> and uh, proposed. I ended up doing two poems over that summer. And then I kept on. Uh, they had some public service announcements to do and they hired me to do those. And I just continued for quite a long time. Um, like about nine years altogether. Yeah. And I think people can see quite a lot of the work you've done with the NFB over the years on um, on their sort of archive. Um, and I was looking through some of the other work you've done and something struck me. As it happens, I'm actually currently working on animated segments for Sesame Street. And uh, knowing that you'd done that yourself back in the day, I was kind of curious about your experiences on it and um, how that kind of came about. Um, well, I started off working with, I guess, who was the person who probably was the pioneer of animation at Sesame Street, Edith Zorno, who's no longer with us. But um, uh, I uh, went down to New York and met her, and she handed me a curriculum. And uh, all of this was new to me, but uh, um, I think I proposed, I think they 
they under underlined, they highlighted a few different points that they wanted films on. So I proposed some films and did some films for them. And then also the CBC in Montreal, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, uh, produced Sesame Street segments where they substituted the uh, Spanish learning sections for French learning um, uh, sections. And so they were producing animation. I did a number of pieces for CBC Sesame Street as well. So, uh, in general, I mean, do you have you always sort of kind of alternated between making films and doing sort of more commissioned work, or do you take time off from one or the other over the years? Um, well, I think I, I've alternated between making short animated films, which is my favorite thing to do. Um, I don't always have something going. It's hard to get one of these films going. I actually... You know, many years passed between them. And uh, so I have pursued, I've done a little bit of commercial work. Um, I've produced with my own company, but usually my own films, but more commercial for television, um, a little bit. And uh, um, also um, more recently, uh, and actually all the way through, I've, I've worked for other uh, directors, um, adapting to their style and doing animation for their projects. And I've worked with some really um, wonderful illustrators and directors and uh, and to do animation, you know, in a style completely different. And I like doing that, actually. So it's, uh, it's, um, I don't have to worry about the whole film, because I'm not the director. And um, I just have to concentrate on the animation and drawing. And that's what I basically love to do. You know, it's interesting, like, looking at your new film and what it kind of brought to mind, I think I was mentioning just before we started recording, like, it brought back a lot of memories of the city. And specifically how the Metro, to me, weirdly has been a place that's kind of inspired creativity. And I can't quite articulate why, but I just have so many associations of just waiting for trains to come and coming up with an idea for something, a song or a piece of animation or something like that. Um, there's something very specific about that atmosphere. Uh, I wouldn't say anything I ever came up with was quite as happy-go-lucky as this film feels. Um, there is a very joyful space you make the, the Metro out to be, and I was kind of interested in that. Was that always kind of how you've seen it, or is it more a case of sort of subversion in a sense? Well, I think partly what brings the the uh, that joyful flavor to it is the music, because mm -hmm. I first thought of doing a film to the song Complaint for St. Catherine, or in English, it would be Lament for St. Catherine, um, though it doesn't. Uh, it's anyways. Um, uh, it's, I think it's a, a really fun song and very uplifting. And I just wanted something that fit the mood. And I had no idea what I would do at first. And it just kind of came out that way. Um, coincidentally, um, as I was working for the National Film Board during this time and developing it, the National Film Board moved from the suburbs of Montreal to right downtown, um, you know, around all of the um, uh, performance places. And, you know, it's really, it's called Cautier de, de Spectacle. And it's um, really a central place, but 
you don't drive your car. And I did drive. I was a driver. (laughs) And before that, I think, you know, it was a long time ago that I was really regularly taking the metro. It goes back to when I was much younger and maybe going to art school and sketching and drawing. But now here I was again, it, it, I was starting to take the metro and the bus again or a bicycle in the summer. Um, and uh, I've, it, it, I found it really efficient and kind of pleasant in a certain way. I I think my very first few rides back on the, the bus and the metro, I think I was just very lucky to have some really interesting adventures. First, my eyes were on the lookout for interesting things in case I could somehow to use them in developing the film idea. But I had an opera singing bus driver who sang all of the stops, like really dramatically. Um, I don't know what happened to him, but he was on a particular bus and sometimes you'd get him. And, you know, people carrying really crazy things through the metro. And I just, uh, it is it is a good place for people watching, though you can't really like look too closely at any one person, you know, you're not supposed to stare at anything, anybody. Um, but still, I got lots of ideas, you know, and looking at it in that light, it was really, um, uh it was really fun and um and i did find it pretty pleasant and uh, efficient to take it to take the bus in metro so coming back to what you're saying about the song and i was kind of curious if you had any kind of relationship with the songwriters or the performers themselves um or if not how you kind of approach them to bring the song um uh, and make it animated. Um, yeah, well, I have known uh, Kate and Anna McGarrigal since the time they wrote this song in the 70s, in the mid-70s. Um, they were friends of friends, and uh, we had, there were gatherings, musical gatherings, where there was a lot of cooking and eating and music playing, and I would go to these gatherings. And um, so a lot of their friends and family also play with them played have played with them all these years and i met all them all of them too and um uh so i've just known them really for a very long time and um unfortunately kate uh, uh passed away um but i approached anna and asked uh if she, what she thought of me doing a film to it and she was happy to do that and actually i mean she was happy that a film was going to be made and they they have had others of their songs made into animated films a couple of them or, or that they performed to um black fly um black fly no um uh you know the log drivers waltz which is uh one of their songs and it's a that very well um for the national film board and um uh, so when I approached Anna, I also at, wanted to ask her to kind of explain a little bit better the lyrics because I wasn't sure what some of them meant. Even with uh, Google Translate, it wasn't clear <laughs> and also wasn't clear what they meant by those words. And um, they were written by Philippe Tatterchev, who is a, who worked with them as a songwriter, at least for their French songs for a long, for a long time. And um so I got a better idea of, you know, there's nothing like saying you'll do a film to a song and then 
realizing you didn't even fully understand the lyrics. But it turns out they are just a little playful and nonsensical and just, you know, random little ideas and statements all stuck into a song. And it 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 works really well as lyrics. It didn't necessarily make sense for a film for as a story. There's no story there or specific theme. So I just took the Metro as a theme mm -hmm. to start because it starts talking about the Metro at the beginning. It mentions it. Yeah. Yeah. I was curious about that because um, as bad as my French is, and it's pretty bad, uh, my Quebecois French is just, I'm lost at sea. So I wasn't sure, like I was wondering if the visuals in the film were at all kind of, a direct interpretation of what's going on in the lyrics or if there's more kind of poetic license um, in that regard? Well, the basic scenario, there's none of that in the song, but um, all of the things that are mentioned in the song are at some point referenced. But if you don't know the song or understand the song, it, it really is not important. You know, the fact that there are mosquitoes in there, it were fine. And I wouldn't have had mosquitoes in there had they not been in the lyrics, but uh, it, it added something to the story. So I found, you know, this refer reference to hockey. So I have, mm. I thought hockey would be fun, especially if nuns played it. Um, so there, there are various um, references throughout, but I don't, I try to make the reference come around the time of the lyric, but it isn't even absolutely exactly because also the, some of the lyrics repeat so i wasn't going to repeat the images so as far as then coming up with other kind of visual concepts and and you mentioned some of the kind of um quirky aspects of taking the metro were there other kind of first-hand experiences of your own that you kind of put into the film you know there are all kinds of details um i guess First of all, I, I'm in the film sketching some of the people because I, I'm just referring to myself. But it's myself in the 70s when I used to take the Metro. So it's not today. It's So I'm there is someone sketching in the Metro and that's me. You know, there was someone who was trying to bring an enormous a woman with high heeled boots on. But on the other side of the platform was ready to get on a train with um, a huge piece of, I guess, drywall, I guess, uh, you know, a huge thing. I mean, they're going to do some renovation and it looked like it was as big as the car. And unfortunately my, well, my train came. So I, maybe I should have stayed behind to see how she did it, but I did not got on the train and I left. But um, the idea of some bringing inappropriate things onto the Metro struck me, mm. um, you know, uh, I stuck a dog on the Metro, but of course now they allow dogs on the Metro, at least in uh, the front car, except at rush hour. So they have a new thing that's come out. And uh, so some of the things that I thought one never sees on the Metro are starting to appear. Um, like the bicycles and dogs and things. Interesting. The, uh, the design style, I think, looking back at your other work, and there's a certain shared quality, I suppose, as a kind of playfulness. But in terms of just the approach to the design, it struck me as slightly unique to this film. And I was wondering if you'd had any particular kind of recent artistic influences in mind um, when developing the look of it. Mm -hmm. Well, um, 
One of the things uh, I, I tend to change the style a little bit for every idea. And sometimes it's just the materials I use or the animation software that I use. Um, always 2D, um, not 3D. And uh, in this case, um, it was, I, I think it grew out of things that I was enjoying doing in TV Paint, the animation software. So I was using TV Paint and uh it really lended itself well to this technique, which is basically drawing all the animation in line and then coloring it and then removing the line uh, so that you just had areas of color for, for the most part. And uh, so um, to some extent, when I choose a style, it also has a little bit to do with just what I feel like doing at the time. And um, I really enjoyed this technique. I would repeat this one uh, mm -hmm. because uh, it was... Uh, really a nice technique for I just liked um, the kind of control I had and the kind of surprises that it gave in at times too yeah if I remember right when I saw you working on Monsieur Pug and you were working in Toon Boom on that is that right yeah 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 um so did that not quite appeal as far as going back to Toon Boom again well I like Toon Boom a lot um, you know, it's, uh, for those who know about this, it's a vector-based software, and so you can work with it uh, in a bit of a different way, and it has a lot more flexibility in terms of uh, camera moves and changing things and substituting, changing colors, all things like that. Um, those are the advantages in Toon Boom. Again, if I remember correctly, it, it felt like you did a lot of, if not all, the animation basically yourself and would that be the case with this film yeah i worked with an assistant on missy pug or oh. oh actually no i did all the animation and i worked with an assistant for coloring in right. uh, on this one i did everything i did the coloring in as well which um uh, um i'm thankful that they gave me enough time to do that i enjoy doing it i enjoy switching from animating to coloring in and going back and forth it's just uh you know switching uh, you know it's just much more fun to um switch from each uh, uh task but um uh i think it gave me a chance to really reflect um as i was coloring in i made change i made additional changes so this film had the advantage of my being able to sort of revisit uh, because it was I was revisiting my own work and to kind of so I was uh, able to refine the animation or bring in other ideas um, as I was coloring in I do that. Whereas when you finish animation, you have it either in between or just colored in. It comes back, and yes, you can make changes, but um, uh, I was actually just reflecting on each scene for a longer period of time because I was doing the coloring. Hmm. Yeah, and although they kind of they, they push sort of auteur filmmaking, I feel as though that's perhaps quite rare at the NFB, that as a director you would kind of be able to be in control of all the animation. Usually it feels like they there are teams, or at least small teams, um were they fairly kind of hands off as far as like letting you sort of get on with it and sort of come up with the ideas or did they kind of did you have to sort of show them your progress as you went 
Um, <clears throat> they were generally hands off, but I had to show my progress uh, mm -hmm. as I went along. So um, that's fine with me. I mean, there were uh, working with my producer, Marc Bertrand, um, he would make suggestions and uh, he didn't, uh, it was really nice that, you know, if I didn't feel like that was a, a good idea, I just <laughs> didn't do it. But he had some very good ideas as well, which I incorporated. Uh, but generally, um, they wanted a certain amount produced over, let's say, a period of time. But I'm pretty steady, so it really wasn't a problem for me. I just... You know, I'm pretty predictable, actually. It's just for me, production, it just goes smoothly, maybe slowly, maybe quickly, but it depends. But uh, there aren't huge unknowns. Once I'm in, let's say, after a couple of months, I really know where it's, whether I'm on track or I have a chance to get it on track, if so. And, uh, you know, I have to propose, in proposing the film, I had to, propose it at various stages just initially to develop the the initial idea then to develop it more into an animatic and each of these stages has to be approved and then I was basically sending 20 seconds of animation every time I completed them just showing mm -hmm. showing them what's and I work chronologically so it's very easy for them to see um where how it all works together. I don't really do any editing at the end of the film. It's already done. Um, basically, I edit as I go along. I edit in the animatic. I make changes, but basically, by the end, there isn't a huge... I don't work with an editor. There's not a big editing phase, and uh, no one's ever felt that there needed to be. And uh, I work chronologically, so I do know where I am. Uh, in terms of the production, in terms of the progress of the production. And um, I feel it's also good creatively to work chronologically. So in a, in a film like this. Yeah. Because I, I, I find a worry with, with working chronologically myself is I'll inevitably start to go in certain directions. A style will develop in one way, and then I'll look at what I did at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, and mm -hmm. happens on series production as well, like sort of going mm -hmm. back to episodes where I was like, oh no, we've gone off brand here or we've got so yeah, do you find then that's not an issue then with this type of project? Exactly, exactly. I do find that, you know, um, let's say I have a central character in this film and she's not quite at home. <laughs> There's not anyone quite at home there at the beginning. I can't quite place it. And I slowly refine the design. And I might go back and change it if something is really different, needs to be fixed. But in general, I'm getting to know the characters as I'm animating them in the order that I am, they are introduced, the same as the audience is. So you never see that, you know, some inconsistency in terms of the design or uh, even style of animation, because that also develops um, uh you know, you just, they kind of learn it all along with me. Mm -hmm. And um, you worked with uh, Judith Gruber-Sitzer on this, and I know that she's worked with the NFP a lot, and I gather you actually have been a fairly long-term collaborator with her. Um, can you tell us a bit about that relationship and what she brought to this film? 
given that it's based on an existing song already, um, what her kind of um, uh, involvement uh, entailed? Mm-hmm. Well, I've uh, I first met uh, Judith um, working on Dinner for Two. I was looking for someone to do the soundtrack, and that was uh, sometimes I work with a soundtrack. Uh, pre-existing soundtrack, uh, but this time I just animated a film and needed the soundtrack. And so um, I really liked some of the other work she had done. And so um, uh, she asked her to do the music for that film. And since then she's worked, we've had really good, um, a good working relationship. And we, um, she has done the music for almost everything I've done since. And uh, I find her very versatile, flexible, and so totally different kinds of uh, soundtracks, um, you know, so that she'll find the, uh, a really good, uh, interesting approach for the sound. On um, this film, the song Complaint with St. Catherine is two and a half minutes long, and the film is five minutes long. Um, I figured she was probably going to be involved in some way in the soundtrack, but it wasn't clear what she was going to do at the beginning but I started animating the film and I decided to cut it into two pieces and put a lot of ambience in the middle um, and I worked with it that way I worked with animating to the music uh, then kind of filled it in in the middle and then went back to it at the end but um, uh, it wasn't obvious what to do about that <laughs> so um she proposed that the um soundtrack the soundtrack was kind of going along one track and then there was the animation on another track sort of they were just both going along together but i was not illustrating the soundtrack so she suggested ways to bring the sound the song closer to the characters in the film and one of the things she suggested was that there be maybe a few characters doing lip sync of you know that they that I some of them um, would sing this sing the song. Um, I always had the nuns singing, which is a whole crowd of nuns with hockey sticks singing in the middle. But um, and I always had the McGarrigals singing as uh, buskers with a grand piano in the metro. Um, but there weren't uh, there weren't any other characters singing. I tried it and it didn't work. Actually, it was strange. Like, why would they be singing that? But um, she managed to bring all different uh, different ways that she could bring it closer. For one thing, she took out the um, the singing, the voices in some parts, and made it instrumental. Um, brought she we we brought in. Um, well, she also brought in some uh, people to sing along with it. Uh, and what happened was because she had to do all these changes to the soundtrack, it turned out we didn't really have access to, I mean, we didn't know even, we couldn't find them, these separate tracks for the original recording. So the, we didn't have that to work with. Um, so it was decided to re-record the whole thing. And um, she basically scored it very closely. It's as exact closely as possible to the original music, but there are also instrumental parts and brought in a bagpipe. She suggested a bagpipe. I thought that was really funny. So I brought in a bagpipe character into the film and that was really at the end. And then what was interesting was 
Uh, and I should mention also, of course, that the two daughters of Kate and Anna McGarrigal, Martha Wainwright and Lily Lankin, they are the ones who sing the main parts in the song. And they're the, the daughters of the McGarrigals. So it's it's really kind of touching that that uh, they're the ones who've done this. And um, So it was recorded, fantastic uh, band was put together, and it was really just fantastic people working on it. But what was interesting was whenever a character would sing, if they just sang along with the um, song, you didn't really hear them. They just blended in. They had to sing badly. So we had a number of people singing <laughs> badly in the film, off key, off tempo. Um, and you hear them, and they become certain characters in the film. Interesting. Well, it makes for a really lovely overall result. And uh, like I said, it, uh, yeah, it really made me pine for the city. So, um, yeah, yeah, I hope it um, it has a good run ahead of it. And thank you very much for talking to me today. Thanks very much to Janet Perlman for chatting with us. And The Girl with the Red Beret plays at Anima Fest Zagreb Thursday, June 8th, 3.30pm in their Time for the Masters screening. So if you're over there this week, be sure to pencil it in. The festival website is animafest.hr. You can see more of Janet Perlman's work at janetperlman.com. And to check out more of what the National Film Board of Canada is up to, visit nfb.ca. Of course, if you're an animation fan in general, the place you want to be is squiggly.com for all our news, interviews, features, podcasts. If you've not checked us out yet, then be assured it's a treasure trove of wonderment. And you'll wonder how you lived without it for so long. You can also follow us on our socials, facebook.com slash squigglymagazine, at squiggly on Twitter, and at squigglyanimation on Instagram. Of course, that's squiggly, spelled S-K-W-I-G-L-Y. None of us remember why, we just live with it at this point. Well, that's all for this episode of Animation One-to-Ones. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and or your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss the next one, which is coming pretty soon, so stay awake. Until then, I've been Ben Mitchell. You've been wonderful. Bye-bye and happy animating.